Welcome to episode 158 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I know that we can no longer speak about the weather on this podcast. Like, that's a rule we created, and then we always violate it. So I'm violating it right off the top again. Fall is here. Fall is great. I agree. I do like fall, Um, although we only get fall for like a couple of weeks. So we've already got regularly uh, temperatures in the, the mid, sometimes low 30s. So... Winter is coming. I don't watch Game of Thrones, but apparently that's a phrase they use on the show. But it's coming. I I do see that. Yeah, I've never watched it either, but I see that meme all the time with like the dude with the beard. Apparently that's very meaningful. Yeah, I I don't know. When I first saw it, I thought it was a scene from Lord of the Rings that I didn't remember. (laughs) But it's not. So it does have that flavor. Well, it's the same. It's the same actor. It's the guy who played Boromir. Oh, is it really? Yeah. So I was like, I don't remember that scene. I don't remember that phrase. It's because it wasn't there. Your movie knowledge and identification is on point. Yeah, the guy's name is Sean Bean, isn't it? I have no idea. That sounds actually underwhelming for the way that his beard (laughs) appears to me. It's true. That's great. Well, well, let's warm ourselves up with a little affirmations and denials. How about you kick us off with an affirmation? So I am affirming a podcast that I was just uh, keyed into called the Daily Reformation Podcast. So uh, if you remember, you know, that when we started the Society of Reformed Podcasters, we had uh, Reformed Outlook and Fast God Stuff and then uh, us, the Reformed Brotherhood. And very shortly after, we added Five for Fruit. And for a variety of reasons, Carrie's life has gotten a little bit busier, so he hasn't been able to put together a show uh, in quite a while. But the Daily Reformation is typically about 15 to 20 minutes long. So it's not quite five for fruit, but it's a shorter form podcast. And they just explore like good general reform topics. They did a series on the five solas. Uh, They did some stuff on the the canons of Dort. So it's just good kind of episodic serialized shorter form episodes. So check it out. It's Daily Reformation podcast. It's super good. Actually, that's something I'm going to throw into my list because There is this space, isn't there, for like kind of short snippets, nuggets, Mm -hmm. if you will, of Reformed theology that you can just throw in on your way to work or at your lunch break or whenever you like, even while you're working. And just just get a little bit, a little taste, if you will. Just a taste. Let me throw this on as just like a secondary add-on affirmation. Uh, Ligonier has this new show called Simply Put. Uh, it's it's done by a guy named Barry Cooper. It's very similar in terms of length to like five minutes in church history, but it's usually like a topic in systematic theology. And it's called Simply Put because it's this sort of monologue style, pithy presentation of a systematic theology topic in like common language. Um, but he's British, so it automatically sounds sm- uh, smarter. <laughs> but it's a good show, too. This is the golden age of podcasting. It really I mean, is. I know podcasting hasn't been around for that long, but if there's a golden age, it's the this day. It's today, the day that you're living in right now. That means it's all downhill from here. So <laughs> that's true. It's starting that's with us. Good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What do you got, Jesse? I'm affirming a product this week. So lots of people, for various reasons, including myself, have to give up gluten because there's sin in the world. And so most of the time, when somebody says to you oh, this thing is as good as the real thing. It just doesn't have gluten. There's a 97% chance it's just not true. (laughs) But there is this 3% out there, this elusive, the the unicorn of gluten products. And this is what I want to affirm. It's called Pamela's Baking and Pancake Mix. I miss pancakes. Pancakes are glorious. And so this Pamela's Baking and Pancake Mix, I don't know what Pam does. I don't know where she's from. But it's made of, it's got um, cultured buttermilk, almond meal, and eight grams of whole grains per serving. I know this sounds like a, an infomercial right now. In, in some ways it is. It's really good. And here's the thing about it is it makes the pancakes, they're like thicker than a crepe, but I would say thinner than like your normal like huge pancakes. But they get that like nice crispy outside in like the really soft center. And they're just absolutely drop dead delicious. Mm. And I would pair these. Actually, you have to pair these with pure maple syrup. Can I get like an amen on that? Yeah, yeah, but New Hampshire maple syrup, not Vermont maple syrup. Yeah, I knew I knew you were going to go there and there's I was a, There's a that. significant difference between the two. <laughs> so Yeah, one is not socialist. 
It's so true. you want to definitely get pure maple syrup, even if you're just going to eat pancakes packed with gluten, which is I'm down with. That's if you can do that, go ahead. But you need to stop people with this whole like, you know, Aunt Jemima stuff. Syrup is not meant to be like thick and goopy. It's actually very thin and not as sweet. It's, it's meant to be a little bit more mild on your palate. So definitely check out. I'm totally affirming the baking and pancake mix made by Pamela's. You can find it in your grocer. Nice. How I do you feel about the it, syrup thing? What was that? How do you feel about the syrup thing? Uh, I, I like good old fashioned, like generic Aunt Jemima syrup. Uh, but but I, I do have to admit, because, you know, when, when you're not from a state that does their own maple syrup or you're not in the region where you can get like locally made maple syrup, you don't really realize that what you have, is, it's kind of like eating tacos in like northern New England. You don't realize until you go to Mexico that what you've been eating isn't really tacos. Sure. It's the same thing. Like. Like Mrs. Butterworth, Aunt Jemima, whatever the service, it's good and it's tasty, but it's not really maple syrup. That doesn't mean it's not good. It just isn't what maple syrup is. So like, yeah, the sort of watery, runny maple syrup that you get um, in New England, mostly New Hampshire, but also Vermont. Vermont tends to be, I think, a little sweeter. Um, but New Hampshire maple syrup is you're right. It's very subtle. And if you heat it up, it becomes really, really liquidy, which is good because it soaks in. So yes. you're not eating maple syrup on top of your pancakes. You're eating uh, maple syrup like impregnated pancakes, which is the this way <laughs> God intended maple syrup pancakes to be. <laughs> Sorry, I was not anticipating impregnated in there, but it's actually probably pretty good description because it shouldn't be like motor oil. You shouldn't pour it on your pancakes and it just kind of cascades off the side. I know that's like the pictures that everybody sees, right? but true maple syrup does absorb. So you're getting that real, that's why you need to have the crispy sides. It locks yeah. everything in. There's a purpose people. There is a God. There should not be <laughs> chaos when it comes to your pancakes. So if you haven't tried that, I know you're probably, if you go and look it up and you've only had like the high fructose corn syrup style, generic stuff, you're going to be like sweet mercy. Why is this so expensive? Yeah. It's because it's very difficult to make or it takes a lot of effort to make. It's, it's yeah. resource intensive, but it is absolutely delicious. And because it's more expensive, you actually don't need as much of it. Right. You don't need to like drown everything in it. I'm just saying, give it a try. This is the time of year. We're coming into the winter months. You want some good pancakes? You're going to need some good syrup. So yeah. check out both of those things. Highly recommend. Yeah. To make like genuine New Hampshire maple syrup, some... Uh, jabroni had to like walk around in the woods and hammer stuff into trees so that's why it's expensive because it's not just like boiled down sugar there's a right. lot of like actual intensive labor selecting the right tree you know getting it tapped at the right time boiling it to the right temperature there's a lot of like science that goes into it that you wouldn't expect yeah there's a whole crazy industry like we're since we're already off the rails on this topic and i'm on a soapbox i'm just gonna keep going so <laughs> it's not just about like it, it takes a lot of work which is true and you're right like you got to go through find the right trees you got to tap them you got to hang your buckets you got to boil it down all this stuff but even just the supply is is so influenced by the weather because yeah the trees prefer warm days and cool nights that's like the absolute best for making the syrup so depending on the weather of that year going into even out of like the summer months makes a huge difference. So it's actually an incredible thing. It's I would say pure maple syrup is more akin to like making wine or making beer yeah. than it is to like, you know, just throwing recipes together and, and boiling water. It's really complex. And so like yeah. when you get some syrup, there are people that are like snobs that can like, you know, I don't know, like they, they taste the syrup and they, you know, like as if you were tasting coffee or something and they're like, Oh, this was, you know, this came from a tree next to a red barn on the south side of New Hampshire. <laughs> you know, they can tell all that stuff because it's that complex. So you just got to try it. It's great. You'll love it. You know, when you know someone really well, you can see and predict the different kinds of faces they're going to make when they do certain personas. And you totally just put on your like hoity-toity snooty face where you're like, oh, maple syrup next to a red barn. It's like this this face you do. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. adjacent to a field of clovers. Yes. Yeah. It's that good. All right. So get me off of pancakes. What are you denying? So I don't know if you've heard about this or not, but I am denying the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department. Have you oh, heard about this stuff? Uh, a little bit, but I'm so, curious, where are you going with this? So um, 
in the the great state of Arizona resides uh, Apologia Church with uh, my friend Jeff Durbin and James White. Uh, they are elders at uh, the Apologia Church, which is in Phoenix. And so they are very active in uh, anti-abortion ministry. Um, I, they wouldn't even appreciate being called pro-life. They would prefer the term anti-abortion, uh, even though they are in favor of life, all that. There, there's connotations with pro-life that they would actually say they want to distance themselves from. But they regularly spend time protesting and sharing the gospel and ministering at uh, local abortion uh, mills or clinics. And so there was a, a group of them that were out at a clinic uh, on the 10th of October and as they were protesting and, and, you know, you can find their videos online, they're generally respectful. They're uh, they're there. They're they're law obeying people. They're very concerned with obeying the laws. Right. Um, a lot of times they know the laws better than the local police who come out there to try to confront them. And so uh, on the 10th of October, uh, one of the uh, people who is performing abortions leaves the clinic in their car. And as they're driving past, they pull out a gun and point it at one of the protesters. And so the reason I'm denying the Phoenix police department is because they filed charges, right? In I, I don't know the law for sure, but from the videos I've seen and from what I've read, the law in Arizona is actually such that if you brandish an object with the intention of presenting it as a gun, then you can be charged with aggravated assault, whether or not it's actually a gun. Uh, and this ended up, I believe it ended up actually being a gun, but they called the local police. The local police took their, their witness or their statement. They issued charges and then nothing happened for a week. So the following week, right. they were out at the clinic again and the same doctor drove by. And so the, the person who had been threatened with the gun called the police and said, hey, I'm out here. Last week, this guy pulled a gun on me. I'm concerned he may still have the gun with him. I'm concerned for my safety. So the police came out again. They took some statements. They watched the video and they did nothing. Um, and Jeff Durbin has made the point, and I think he's absolutely right, that if one of the uh, one of the anti-abortion protesters had pulled out a gun or even a knife uh, and had brandished it in a threatening manner, um, they would have been arrested and taken off the scene immediately, regardless right. of whether or not a police was there to witness it. For sure. So the the Phoenix police did nothing about this. They did. There was no real investigation that that could be seen. No witness statements were taken apart from the initial day. Um, there was nothing going on. And then all of a sudden, Apologia puts this up on their website and encourages all of their followers to call the police department. And within four hours, the uh, the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator had been arrested. So the reason I'm denying the Phoenix police department is that this is absolute terrible police work. Right. There's video evidence, multiple witnesses, and they don't even question the guy um, right. until, of course, the public brings pressure on them, which is just it's just ridiculous. Do your jobs like do your jobs. You have one job and that's to keep the peace. And, and how much more clear of a situation can it be where you have video evidence of a man pointing a gun at somebody uh, in a menacing fashion? You still do nothing. And his answer, the, the police officer's answer when they asked, why are you not? arresting this guy was, well, I can't be sure that that's a gun. And then again, the the statutes actually state like it doesn't have to be a gun. It could have been a toy gun and he still would have been uh, potentially guilty of aggravated assault if he intended to intimidate someone as though it were a gun, which clearly from the video he did. So I think we're in a cultural moment where like we just are starting to see the police are not doing their jobs in certain instances and there is an agenda behind it. Uh, the right. police have been out there many times and have frankly been made to look foolish by uh, Jeff and his team understanding and knowing and obeying the law. Uh, and I think now that there's there's some blowback now that's happening where they won't even enforce clearly violated laws because of this uh, agenda that they're trying to forward. And anybody who knows Jeff Durbin personally or is like witnessed his ministry by just even viewing their work through YouTube knows that. You know, like when we say they're protesting, they're doing it in a way that's not only peaceful and lawful, but isn't like your traditional confrontation. Like they're not out there just yelling at people, trying to garnish a lot of attention. Right. A lot of times what they're trying to do is is actually encourage and, and get conversation going with those who are entering and exiting those clinics. So I think what you're absolutely right. What we're seeing that's fascinating to me is this renewed or introduced double standard whereby you have these Christian protesters who I think naturally have in the minds of others 
this kind of they've projected on them this sense that they are bigoted. And so because of that, for whatever reason, that overshadows a natural lawful response because not only do we live in a country where there shouldn't be this double standard, but now because of really where gun violence is in our own country, this should be kind of an immediate response. Because I think if, if that had happened in any other situation, where somebody calls and so-and-so is branching a weapon or I see somebody branching a weapon, there should be an immediate response to that just based yeah. on the tragedy that's happened in our country just this year alone. So there's definitely this double standard that's coming forward. And it seems extreme because the response should be an immediate work to try to find out what's going on there and yeah. to apprehend the person that allegedly brandished the weapon. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, I have my disagreements with Jeff on on several theological vectors, but I absolutely think he is probably one of the sharpest um, sort of younger apologetics forces in the reform sure. movement. Um, his his deployment of presuppositional apologetics. Um, he just had a, a debate that he and James White participated in, and the way that they employ the transcendental argument for God, um, just some of the Vantillian insights, is really a sight to see. And the thing that I most respect about Jeff and his ministry is um, he is prophetic in the most possibly reformed sense of the word that he he is able to take the written word of God and confrontationally apply it to whatever situation he is in. And so, you know, there are times when the police will come out and try to tell him he needs to turn down his, his amplification and he will very respectfully present them with the law, which says that they need to have a, a sound meter to be able to determine whether or not they're actually violating the statute. And then he is not afraid in any sense of the word to straight out call them out for their sin when they are not enforcing the law the way that they are supposed to, Um, which is exactly, I think, how a Christian, not necessarily the church uh, per se, and that's one of the areas that Jeff and I would disagree on, but how a Christian is supposed to interact with the world in a prophetic fashion of being able to apply God's word to the situation in in sometimes a confrontational sense. And, you know, this isn't my a cast, we're going to get into reform preaching cast here, but this really ties into what we've been talking about in Micah and Jeff's situation is that Jeff is, is calling the people of Phoenix and the, the civil magistrates particularly to account. And they are, the police especially are acting as respecters of person, which is exactly what uh, Micah was condemning the judges in Israel during his time for. So it really is a, a strange time to be living in. You know, I'm not one of those people that thinks like the whole world is falling apart and that like we're, we're not going to be able to have worship services next next Sunday because the government's going to come in and take away our buildings. Like we're not there. I don't know that we're going to be there in the next 20 years. I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but there really, it, it really is a strange cultural moment that I th- don't think we've ever faced in America. And it's a, it's an interesting kind of scary time to be alive. Hashtag that post mill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a little <laughs> bit of the irony that sometimes I see when I see Jeff out preaching that he's so uh, adamantly post mill, but then also is, is having to sort of grapple with the fact that the culture is pressing against him in like a, a much more aggressive way than we've seen in America in the past. Right. So it's definitely kind of a strange uh, cognitive dissonance there. But, uh, but yeah, just if you get a chance, uh, it, it, it does turn out that the the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator has been arrested now, but pray for Jeff, pray for his ministry, um, pray for the work he's doing in Phoenix, pray for the work that their church is doing. You know, he's got this end abortion now website movement that is really serving to launch a platform and, uh, to get resources in the hand of Christians all throughout the country. And I, I do think we're in this cultural moment where we actually are making some progress in the, the broader culture against the horror of abortion. Um, but it is, a, it is a strange time to be alive. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm with you, brother. What do you got? So this is also a denial of, of somewhat serious nature. And I want to provide quick disclosure. First, I'm not trying purposefully, that is, to trigger anybody, nor am I trying to take on the role of a troll. But what I'm about to say is probably a bit of a hot take, and it's something that I've been thinking about because we're halfway through October, we're approaching Reformation Day, and I always tend to think about where we've come from in our own theological perspectives, where I've come from, with the way that which Lord the Lord has led me, and hopefully he's leading me from glory to glory and spiritual maturity and sanctification. And so when I think of 
the challenges that Martin Luther and John Calvin and others encountered, the, the way in which we admire them for the way they were used by God and of God to make way for transformation through religious expression, but of course going back to the scriptures. I often think of the Roman Catholic Church and the use of indulgences, which was for many, it was almost like the touch point. It was a lightning rod that almost inadvertently spurred on a lot of other theological conversations and yeah. reform. And yeah. so that got me thinking recently about the indulgences and what is it in our modern culture that is like them? So let me just give you the thesis, which again is my hot take. So it's this, that the sinner's prayer with the explicit language of the invitation to receive God into your heart is the modern day ubiquitous indulgence. Yeah. And what I mean by that is the sense that in, the indulgence has really undermined faith in a large degree because it was transactional based. And when we speak about a sinner's prayer and emphasize in particular this word of acceptance, did you accept Jesus? Did you ask the Holy Spirit into your heart? That language is so transactional based that it differentiates and divorces from this idea of not just crying out to the Lord, which I'm saying is important. That is part of the act of salvation, as Paul says. But we don't ask things like, were you repentant? Are you, is there contrition? Yeah. Are you living a life of obedience and faith that results in fruitfulness? And so that's, that's my denial, is that the sinner's prayer and explicitly this idea of the invitation and receiving that is the modern day indulgence. And I'm denying it as a type of indulgence. What say you? Have I gone too far? I, I don't think so. And I don't... I I don't think anyone in our audience is really going to think that you went too far. I mean, <laughs> I think there might be a couple people listening who are new to the show that are like, what in the world just happened? But I think you're right. I mean, forget who it is. I'm sure Michael Horton has said that at some point, but there really is this reality or maybe our Scott Clark that the, the word and sacrament, the baptism of the Lord's supper has very much been replaced by quiet time and decision theology. Yeah, where, for sure. Where the new sacrament of the church has been this decision for Jesus as sort of the initiatory right, and um, you know your daily quiet time as the the sort of ratification right of the the Christian religion. And what I think is really um, interesting in a sort of confusing and sort of sad way is the same people often who will rail against the idea that someone believes their child is saved even though they've gone astray because their child was baptized will also uh, in the same vein will ignore the fact that their child has totally like walked away from the faith because right. they, they went down for an altar call at some point. Like the same people right. will say, well, that's ridiculous. You can't think your child's saved because he was baptized, but will then, uh, despite all evidence to the contrary, will believe their child is saved because they prayed a particular prayer at one moment in time. And there's this, again, there's this weird discordant reality to that, that they don't see that they're actually doing the same thing. And, you know, I think about the the sinner's prayer and don't get me wrong. Th there's nothing wrong with a, like a particular scripted prayer that you lead someone through when they've, when they've truly repented, but treating it as though it's some magic formula or some talisman that obligates God to do something is totally off base. Um, there's this weird phenomena that happens in evangelicalism where that just becomes this new sacrament or this new indulgence, very much like praying your our fathers, right? You go to the priest, right. he says, pray 10, 10 Hail Marys. Well, it, it, you only have one indulgence in the evangelical world, and it's pray your one sinner's prayer. And a lot of times people do that repeatedly because they don't think it took the first time. Right. That's my point. My basic, where I've come to land on this is if you hate indulgences, the idea, the concept, the practice of them, then you ought to also hate that type of sinner's prayer where yeah. it's based on, did you receive an invitation and did you accept it? Because we can rely on that in the same way that others rely on indulgence as proof that no matter what happens, well, I did this particular thing and therefore there's an obligation on the part of God yeah. to absolve me from some kind of guilt or from some kind of shame. And then from sins itself to bring salvation. And that I think is still a real problem. Yeah. And it's, I think as pervasive and as pernicious as the indulgence system. So I know that, that sounds extreme, but part of me believes that it is extreme because it is in the sense that 
the kind of behavior where we kind of meritoriously do something because we believe that in the doing of something on our part, that seals the deal. Yeah. That's the very thing that, that uh, Calvin and Luther were trying to get away from. It's yeah. what started the whole, everything to begin with was this idea that we are somehow earning a sense of salvation or security. And we instead all along, we should be focusing on the security that, that like we talked about on other episodes that God provides us through the sign and seal of the Holy Spirit and the fruit in our lives. Because in reality, almost every day should be a, a sinner's prayer and this turning ourselves over to God, crying out for him to help. It's not that we have to continually ask that God would save us, but it's that his divine will and pleasure on his own volition to save us in a way that's not contingent on somehow we get this wedding invitation in the mail, and we either open it and send in the RSVP or we don't. And that to me is just like the indulgence. I, I can't see any other way around it. So yeah. extreme or not, I'm denying indulgences and what I think is their derivative representation in our own evangelical culture. And that is this idea of invitation or decision theology. Yeah, absolutely. I just have one thing to say about that, Jesse. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. <laughs> You totally are channeling Paul Washer right now. <laughs> Doesn't he make a reference to to Britney Spears? In he that does. Sermon? Yeah, it's funny because uh. if you look up his own reflection on that sermon, he actually kind of admits that that sermon was a little bit of a train wreck. Yeah, which, was, which is good. He, he recognizes harsh. that, like in the heat of the moment, he went a little off base. Because um, at one point he says uh, that repentance both precedes and follows yeah. faith, and it's like, well, he can't can't really do both, so. Yeah, he he uh, he recognized that he was a little off kilter on that one. The center of that is really good. Like it was a really unique challenge and it was kind yeah. of what we've been talking about here. But it, it did on the peripheral. There were some things said that it was some of it, I think it was just a matter of sloppy language. He's, he's preaching passionately at the time. And yeah, it kind of came out in a way that was slightly weird. But that is still remains like a challenging sermon because it, it is all about the heart. It is all about the center of who we are and the desire for godly living and that can only come through from god through the holy spirit and it's something that we can't fake but as human beings we want to fake it. we want the external signs we want to say i did this thing and therefore i know or i i, I read my bible every day like you said going back to this idea of quiet time which i hate that term you know we we want to do these things because we feel like it makes us more spiritual people and it's really hard to separate us from that and say, like, what does the scripture say about what it means to be saved? Yeah. That's just a much harder life to live. And it's yeah. not one that's like, I want to be clear. It's not one that is less identified and less secure. In other words, it's not like, well, there's no equivalent with what we're talking about to know for certain that you've been predestined or that God has saved you. Those assurances still come, but they come in a different way. And actually... This is a good segue because some of that I think we're going to see in this chapter from Reform Preaching by yeah. Dr. Beakey. We're on chapter 10. We're talking about some additional Puritans. We're just stacking them up, stacks and stacks and stacks of Puritans. Yeah. And we're talking tonight about three in particular with the last names Rogers, Sibs, and Preston. Those are great names. Yeah. And I want to pause real quick and say, like, before you turn off our voices because you're like, oh, I didn't read this chapter, I didn't read the book, stay with us. Isn't that yeah. like an NPR thing? I think or that's so. Like a, yeah, stay with us because there's so much that's good in this chapter where you don't even need to read it because I think we're going to draw a lot of themes that are just practical practical for Christian living because that's what the Puritans did. So we're talking about these three guys. And the first thing I wanted to throw out to you that I found really interesting about this chapter is it kind of opens up with a statement that a lot of these preachers, the reason why he groups these guys together is they're coming out of the influence of many others yeah. And there's this spiritual lineage, this almost like family tree of influence upon each other. And it struck me that good preaching, good teaching, mutual fellowship does result in this kind of thing. Like there's almost these, we might look at them and say these, all these circumstances where so-and-so heard somebody say this, or so-and-so was present during this person's preaching and it just radically re redefined or changed their lives. But isn't that the way God works? Isn't that why he draws us together? And part of preaching is this dramatic influence that happens that's like sequential and derivative and yeah. cumulative where there's, there's ministers and congregants influencing one another and radically changing the course of history because of a quote unquote, a chance encounter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you and I, I think, I, I think you and I have always been very similar, but I think of, as we've done this podcast together over the last 
three and a half years or so like we are our perspectives have become more and more the same on things because that was the same exact thing that i picked up on when i read this chapter was there really is you know you kind of look through this and and you think all right well i know perkins and then like the next chapter is is you know john bunyan comes down a little bit later and you're like all right, i know perkins i know bunyan i know calvin i know beza but like who are these guys right we, well yeah i know i know sibs but like who's this rogers and preston's guy and it's really important because there really is this spiritual lineage there, there really is this trajectory that starts with calvin in a lot of senses or zwingli and it really comes down through the reformed tradition and and in a very real sense it comes down to you and i today it's not as though this this uh this lineage stopped at some point but right. you know like i if i had to point other than my own pastor if i had to point to someone who was kind of like my my most significant theological uh influence i would say michael horton right Sure. Michael Horton would probably point to R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul would probably point to John Gerstner. John Gerstner would point to somebody else. And like even just in that small amount of time, I can already identify four or five like generations of influence theologically. And if I really, really wanted to and had the time and energy, it probably would not be that difficult to trace out and figure out how that lineage goes all the way from where you and I are sitting today all the way back to a person like Calvin or to Swingley, because the the lines, especially in the reform tradition, the way that we are kind of a book driven and academic driven tradition, those lines of academic transmission are very clear and they're very interesting and they're very important. And so, you know, he starts off this chapter with this whole this paragraph that basically is this this genealogical family tree, right? Perkins was the the professor of this guy, and this guy was the the pastor of this guy, and then this guy mentored that guy, and it really is this um, organic development and lineage that really is very much like a family tree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. What we you know what we need is you know like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. We need yeah. the reformed equivalent of that. We could do that. That'd be a fun game. I don't know how. I mean, it'd be like the first time we did it and then after that we'd be like i don't know <laughs> but the idea is solid because and this is where like it translates into even like just normal kind of casual conversation is we never know exactly what god is doing but we know that when we're preaching the gospel when it's on our lips when it's part of conversation but especially when it's being proclaimed on the lord's day something incredible is happening there and that also means that somebody may come into our churches on the Lord's day and be so radically transformed. But again, what, what I think is a random kind of chance encounter, but this is the way in fact God desires and often does work. And these gentlemen are a good example of that. Some yeah. of them have just, just heard one sermon and it wasn't because there was great oration present. It was because the gospel was just being preached in its entirety without kind of any kind of varnish and the Holy spirit moved through that in a yeah. way that was predestined. And one of the things I want to kind of speak about with respect to Richard Rogers, who is the first Puritan mentioned here. Uh, now, all these guys that we're talking about, they were came out of Cambridge University in the late 16th century. Yeah. And they had this kind of common bond that we united around reform doctrine and this idea of living in a, a secular culture with a specific bend toward pursuing godliness. So there's something in that by itself that's very admirable that we ought to try to emulate. Right. One of the things I find really interesting about Rogers that I wanted to throw out there for discussion is his emphasis, as Dr. Beakey describes, on the doctrine of predestination. And this actually was one of the things I was thinking about with my denial of the sinner's prayer as a type of indulgence. So here's a quote from page 176. This is Rogers describing predestination. And I think it's really illustrative how he articulates his position. He says, predestination itself is manifested in time by the enlightening and opening of the heart to receive the glad tidings of the gospel so that Christ is embraced by faith and the Holy Ghost is given to the believer who quickens the heart with spiritual grace. Yeah. So I see this actually standing in complete juxtaposition to this decision theology that we just spoke about, because it's not as if we're saying when you were saved, you were saved all at once. There's a moment of justification. But this idea that predestination itself is manifested in time. So God is working by means and the experience of conversion comes in stages. I think that's something that is really undervalued as we speak about it. It's almost yeah. like when you become a Christian, well, you got to become like fully a Christian. And there's a sense in which that's true. I'm not debating that in terms of the just justification by faith. 
But this idea that we must somehow exhibit a fullness or a full fullness and compared to his idea that it's being manifested, like displayed through time, I think is is really undervalued. So yeah. what say you about that? Yeah, I mean, that's a common uh, thing that happens in Reformed theology where we have to understand that what, what God decrees in eternity past has to unfold in time. Like he, he decrees our salvation in eternity past. So in one sense, we are saved from all eternity, right? Um, Voss talks about it. I think it's in, I want to say it's dogmatics number one, maybe, uh, or maybe number two. I don't know. It's one of the first two volumes. He talks about how, um, you know, we have a particular kind of union with Christ in eternity past in the mind of God, pro- logically and chronologically prior to our own creation. Right so in, in a certain sense, we are created already being comprehended as united to Christ. Right. But that that eternal reality, that eternal comprehension of us as united to Christ still has to unfold and play out in time. And so that's a slightly different angle at the same concept that that Rogers is getting at here. But that idea that even though God has determined in eternity past that certain things would come to pass. Right. Um, Westminster uh, Catechism. The decrees of God are his eternal purposes, whereby according to the uh, according to the purpose of his own will for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He has eternally determined it, but it still has to come to pass. So that that dynamic is something that is present in a lot of different elements in Reformed theology. And so that's the kind of thing where we're talking about the conversion process, the Ordo Salutis and this idea of a sinner's prayer this is helpful because I think it shows us or demonstrates a prop- properly based on the biblical data that conversion is something that it happens or is experienced in stages such that part of that is the bearing of the fruit, the proof, so to speak, that's in the eating of the pudding. And what I love about Rogers and the rest of these guys actually is that they're so practical in their Christianity that yeah. they're willing to almost admit that these things don't happen exactly in the way that we would we'd want them to. In other words, they don't make anything simple. There are things that are more complex, more nuanced, and they don't shy away from those things. And yet at the same time, they're pushing us toward practicalness because, or practicality, because I think oftentimes, like we talked about before, the Puritans get this bad rap as like these really super smart, egg-headed guys that spoke a lot about complicated theology, wrote tomes and tomes of material, and most of it was divorced from like what you do on Monday morning when you're just like a laborer. And yeah. so what's interesting is that Roger's best known book, and I've heard of this, but I totally forgotten about it until Dr. Beaky brought it up in this chapter. Let me just read the title of this book because <laughs> it is so, so Puritan and yet so awesome. So Roger's best known book is called seven treaties containing such direction as gathered out of the Holy scriptures, leading and guiding to true happiness, both in this life and in the life to come and may be called the practice of Christianity. (laughs) I love that. The title of this book is three lines long. Uh, It's It's so good. good. And, And what I did was, I don't know if you did this kind of thing, but sometimes I'll see a book like this come across some page that I'm reading and I go immediately to Amazon. You actually can't find this thing really. It's really difficult to find it. So I've read excerpts from it, but it's actually these seven treaties and he mentions what each of them are, but they're so insanely practical that what we're getting here is this idea of experiential preaching. It aims really high. It sets like goals that are heavenly minded But at the same time, it really speaks out about obstacles and inward warfare. And that's what we need. A lot of preaching these days is a little bit one or the other. It's so high up that you're kind of like, I don't even know where to start with this. And I've been this way too. Sometimes there's a bias against this idea of application. It's like, just give me meat. Don't tell me what to do. Like, I, I need to process that for myself and I need to wrestle and really figure it out. And yet at other times, there's no speaking about the struggle that that takes to to apply this, even in the power of the Holy Spirit, the constantly seeking to be filled by the Holy Spirit so that we might actually live this out on, by faith and in obedience. But these guys did a really good job of bridging that gap and making it not taboo to speak about both things with consummate harmony. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I think is interesting, right? It, it's not the case that 
the so-called Puritan ethic or Puritan understanding of the commandments like came into being with Rogers. But Beaky makes the point here that this manual that um, Rogers produces really sort of kicks these uh, these ethical positions or these moral positions, it really sort of like advances them into the popular mindset. So yes. if you if you look at the way that Calvin reflects on the Ten Commandments, right in the the fifteen hundreds, um, it's not it's not substantively different than what we have in the Westminster Confession in the sixteen you know sixteen forties. But uh, Rogers here really. This manual includes these reflections on Christian moral practice that really becomes like the program for godly living in in the the academic and popular mind in ways that it hadn't quite been before. So yes. you can't underemphasize how important Rogers actually is when you think about puritanical morals. You're really talking about Rogers' book uh, of that ridiculously long title. Right. That's what we're talking about. Not not necessarily uh, what we think of in like, you know, like the Salem witch trials. People think of like the, the Salem Puritans or the Salem pilgrims. That's a really late, late application of this. The the Puritan moral and the Puritan ethic really finds its fruition in Elizabethan England. Right. And there's this just to give an example, the fourth treatise and the fifth treatise the fourth is eight reasons why a Christian should practice the daily disciplines of godliness. I want to get that yeah. because like I read that and I think, yeah, like that's what I need. Like I, I basically need to have you tell it to me like I'm a fifth grader. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's, it's not that we can't understand complex things because God in his great graciousness has condescended to give us that knowledge often. It's that what we desperately need is to know sometimes how to apply it and why it's worthwhile and to be, I think that that's part of the transformation of the mind. And the fifth treatise, examination of the obstacles to walking with God, for example, Satan leaving our first love, evil and worldly lusts. Again, I read that and was like, how can I get a copy of that? Yeah, because exactly. I just see that as the kind of thing that on Monday morning, that's what I need to be made mindful of. What can I do to apply that? I love what Beaky says on page 179, commenting about all of the stuff that Rogers puts together. And this is such an amazing and well-articulated indictment against modern evangelicalism. So Beaky writes, they want an easy Christianity, that is us, with a Christ who meets all their immediate desires. They may tolerate some discipline in the outward life to attain their earthly goals. However, it is common that they use the banner of grace alone to claim that spiritual blessings come easily once you find the right key without pain or wrestling against evil. And yeah. that just like set me on my back because it, for me, I, I try to be a person that is disciplined when it comes to goal setting. And so I, I think oftentimes he, well, he's very right in the sense that sometimes we can see that type of goal setting we think is not spiritually minded because there should be this overwhelming sense of grace and mercy that to set goals toward godliness seems to be counterintuitive because we don't want a smack of anything that's meritorious. But when I look at Jesus, one of the things I admire so much about him that I believe I've mentioned before is that he is so disciplined, so disciplined. And I think that was by design because God shows us the discipline of his son for people, especially like me, who say, I could not respect a God-man who wasn't the one who was going out early and separating himself from people, forsaking sleep to go be with the Father to pray. There yeah. is in that this intense desire to be with the Father that is manifested in action that we ought to observe, not merely as something that was unique and particular to the Son of God who is imbued with the entirety of the Spirit, but something also that we ought to emulate. So this is, again, like I know that we've kind of we run up to this line of like the try harder where we're trying to like get to that line as you and I talk about it without like going over it and going into some kind of heresy. This is kind of like the be like Christ, like be disciplined in your walk with God. Do not accept an easy Christianity. There is no soft stuff when it comes to life with God, both in the power that he brings into our lives and the way in which we ought to order our lives by way of discipline to meet with him. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I mean, they really, you really can't, um, you can't overestimate how much godliness and piety was central to the the self conception and understanding of the Puritans. And you know, sometimes I wonder. I think 
do we as modern reformed Christians, because I, I don't actually even consider myself an evangelical anymore, but do we as modern reformed Boom. Christians, right? Do we consider godliness and piety to be at the core of our very identity the way the Puritans did? And, right. and I can say most of the time I do not. Right. I, I have too. all these different things that I would consider to be the center of my identity. And, you know, on, on the best day, most of them are related to my faith and, and to my identity in Christ. And, you know, then there's other things. I'm a podcaster. I'm a husband. I work at the hospital. Like there's other things that are accidental to my uh, identity. But for the for the Puritan, all of those things. And th this goes to that idea of the 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 vocational understanding that even so-called secular or profane work is still made holy when it's done unto the Lord. Right. Those things that we would consider accidental to our identity, even if we consider our identity in Christ as substantial or central, those things now become about piety and godliness in the Puritans in a way that I don't think we can quite grasp yet. So if anything, that's a challenge to us is, you know, we really should look at the Puritans not as some sort of like legalistic, um, you know, puritanical, crazy, overly obsessed with holiness in the law kind of a people, but as a people for whom the law of God was the pathway to understand what it meant to truly find your identity in Christ. Right because on. if you truly have your identity in Christ, then you will walk and live and learn and love like Jesus Christ in a way that I don't think most of us even are, are, it's not even on our radar most of the time. Exactly, man, that was so good. And so anti-indulgence. Yeah. Forget indulgences. <laughs> forget them. I don't so even like, I don't even like fancy chocolate cause it's too indulgent. <laughs> we indulge in nothing, nothing, nothing. So let's talk real briefly about uh, Richard Sibbs as kind of like a way to close out because, uh, I mean, Sibbs is the man, but I, I love this. I want to throw this quote out as I think is a, a real good encapsulation of what Sibbs taught. And there's something in it that uh, drew me back to conversations you and I have had before and that God has really honestly transformed my mind in thinking and give me new convictions. So this is on page 181, and it's a quote from Dever about Sibs. He writes, Sibs taught that the primary means Christ used to prepare his elect's hearts for salvation was by the ministry of the gospel. Hearing begets seeing in religion. Death came in by the ear at the first, Adam hearing the serpent that he should not have heard. Death came in by the ear. So life comes in by the ear, end quote. Here's what struck me about this quote. I read this and I was like, man, is this not once again coming strong against the second commandment images of Christ? Yes. <laughs> because I was thinking this idea of he's making a, an interesting emphasis that it's hearing as the apostle Paul speaks of this hearing of the word. It's interesting that he doesn't say seeing begets seeing. He's saying hearing itself begets all the seeing that you need. It goes back again to something that, that John Owens has said. So I was just like, man, here again, we see that theme coming up, how important it is that we see by faith and not by sight. And it's that hearing, again, going back into the Lord's day and having the word proclaimed to us, not just read in our own minds, but proclaimed to us that the thing is that begets the seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to the very beginning of when we started talking about Puritan preaching, right? So we're going back like two months now when we had this sort of general Puritan preaching episode is that for the Puritans, the preaching of the gospel was everything. Everything yes. that God was doing in the world, in the world, was brought about by the preaching of the word. Whether it was cultural transformation, whether it was uh, societal, you know, governmental transformation, whether it was personal transformation, whether it was ecclesiastical transformation, everything was brought about primarily by sermons. So e even even the fact that uh, they collected sermons to be written, there was something unique about the sermons. And, you know, we have a, a faith, as I've said before, like our faith is a word-based faith. It's, yes. it's not a sight-based faith. It will, they, it will someday be a sight-based faith in heaven when we're able to comprehend the, you know, the risen Christ with our eyes. But it, right now it's a, it's a hearing based word based faith. And that's something that I think the Puritans, even more than Calvin, even more than Zwingli, uh, I think the Puritans got that in a way that, that I think even some of their earlier predecessors didn't quite get. And, you know, even, um, I, I'm going to sound like the most curmudgeonly person in the world right now, but you Do know, it. 
Do so it. we, you know, I was always prior to coming here, I was always involved in churches that had PowerPoint presentations and skits and videos and, and things to sort of like keep your attention with your eye. You yes. know, we would do video announcements that had like funny commercials, basically, at one of these mega churches I was at. And now that I'm at a church where we don't even we don't have a projector, we don't have technology, like the closest thing to a visual aid we have is like a hymnal that we can sing and read out of and, and the Bible itself. It really is refreshing to be to be forced to depend on the faculty of hearing in terms of receiving the gospel, Amen. because that's that's the way that God intended it. Or he would have he would have he would have inspired a picture book right at the right. end of the day. The Bible is not a picture book. So. So, yeah, I mean, regardless of what your views are on the second commandment and whether it applies to images of Christ or not, it still doesn't change the fact that our faith is predominantly, if not exclusively, a word-based faith at, at this juncture in redemptive history. And I think that's among the stronger arguments, among many, for why images of Christ are a violation of the second commandment. Yeah. But it extends, like you said, it's far-reaching. One of the things that absolutely annoys me so much is this new technology where, I mean, I have no problem with the fact that oftentimes the easiest way to communicate to a congregation, the words that you're about to sing is to put them on the screen. I'm, I can get down with that. Yeah. I'm totally fine. It's now like, I don't know if you've seen this where the kind of the new iteration of that is to have some kind of image behind the screen that is constantly moving yeah. or is, you know, like twinkling stars, something like that. This kind of stuff we think it's cool and it is to some extent, it just does not belong in my opinion because it is, right. is ultimately a distraction. And what I find interesting is that Sib says in this chapter, in his own words, it's not sufficient to preach Christ merely by teaching people, the doctrines of the Bible, rather there must be an alluring of them for to preach is to woo. And when I read that, I was thinking, yes, pastors come and woo us. And yeah. Unless you're in love with Christ, unless like what you're doing is not just mere, teaching of doctrine and fact. In fact, one of the things that John Preston says in, in his section is that the sermon isn't this running commentary of the Bible, but a structured discourse with distinct points where there is this wooing, this pleading, this passionate love that comes across for Christ. That must be present in a sermon. And I, and I know too many pastors that most of what they do is this reoccurring or this kind of running re-emphasis or regurgitation of just the story, the narrative in particular of a text. So like here, let me give an example that's like super nuanced and it's just totally pigeonholed to it, probably a select group, but you've seen the whole sitcom series, Parks and Recreation, right? Most of it, yeah. What? You haven't seen the whole thing? No. I'm a Christian, so... <laughs> What does that even mean? God loves Parks. Okay. So anyway, there's this NBC, I think it's NBC sitcom, yeah. Parks and Rec. It's about a small town in Indiana and their Parks and Recreation Department. But there's this one particular episode where there's supposed to be a, d a debate for one of the, the, um, the actors. And the, it's going to be televised to the, all these participants who have donated a lot of money and they can't get the TV to work because this, the cable has not been paid the cable bill. And so to stall for time, one of the people on the team who is part of this effort to try to get this person elected starts to reenact all these Rambo movies and just goes through and tells the narrative. And I'm just not gonna be able to do this justice. I can't do the interpretation, but those who have seen <laughs> know, know what I'm talking about. Andy Dwyer, who's the character name does this oh, whole thing man. about like, Rambo where he's talking about like I haven't even seen the Rambo movies but it's so hilarious where he talks about like you know the missionaries come up and they're like we want to go upstream and Rambo's like I don't think so and they're like no we're going to go up and do that and he's like what kind of weapons do you have and he goes through this whole thing where he's just like kind of almost just telling the story over and over again it's hilarious so now I have this joke with my wife whenever I hear a pastor that's, that's all they're doing all I can see now is Andy Dwyer reenacting <laughs> the Rambo movies and I think that's all that's happening here yeah. is you just re we just read it together and the most important part of the sermon is the scripture which has been read what we need now is to have the truth unfolded to us as Sib says and for us to be wooed, so to speak, and, and we've spoken a lot about the difference between preaching and teaching, but I love that emphasis. I think there's something there that, that unites appropriately passion yeah. for an exegetical focus on the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. Before we round out the episode, I do want to touch briefly on something that I observed that I thought was interesting in the little section here on John Preston is, you know, we, we've talked a lot in this series about 
how experiential preaching is not necessarily a style, right? It's right. it's not necessarily even a method. It has more to do with um, the the aim and the the intention of the sermon to actually connect with the hearts of the people and and influence them not just in their mind but also in their heart. And so one of the things that I think is interesting is in in our modern context, a lot of times like non-lectio continua or non-expository preaching is looked like really looked down on, even if it's something like redemptive historical preaching, which is more right. common in kind of the Westminster stream, Westminster seminary stream of thinking like reform forum, kind of that that end of the reformed theology spectrum. But it's interesting when when Beaky here is talking about um, John Preston is he makes the point that it's not just a running commentary on scripture. Right. We, we talked about that with Sibs here, but he makes that point with Preston as well, that what Preston does is he very quickly gets through the text. He, he very right. briefly, if at all, comments on the expository meaning of the text and he goes straight to the meaning and the application of the text. And so he, he points out that Preston. Um, Preston preached a four sermon series on Romans 117. And in this series, he points out three doctrines that the righteousness is revealed, offered in the gospel to many, that by faith we are made to partake of this righteousness, and that faith has degrees and every Christian should grow from one degree to another. Now, first of all, the the amazingness of pulling those three points out of one verse and it being doctrinally sound is just flabbergasting. So good. But he goes on to point out that he does this in a lot of ways by asking questions about the text, mm -hmm. which which is not necessarily expositing the text. Right. It's when when you go to do an exegesis of a text, you're you're trying to bring the meaning out and you bring that meaning out by by asking certain kinds of questions. But what Preston seems to do here, at least if I'm reading Beacon correctly, that's really, I think, ingenious and very unique is he actually preaches by means of those exegetical questions rather than kind of doing exegesis uh, publicly, which is the way a lot of expository preachers do. Like, like John MacArthur actually sort of refuses to do application. He doesn't think that there's a lot of value in that. He just exegetes the text from the pulpit and then kind of sits down. But what right. Preston does is he actually sort of like brings the congregation through that exercise of asking these questions of the text and what he ends up doing is he's teaching his congregation how to apply the scripture. And then he supports all this argumentation by making reference to other scriptures. So it's yes. it's this really brilliant methodology. I mean, we've said it a bunch of times, like we're not that far into this book. And even if we were on the last chapter, this is the internet, folks. You can always go back and listen to the old episodes again. So pick up the book and read it. Like it's an amazing book. And there's all these little insights that, as we've said, if you're if you're the kind of person who has some sort of preaching responsibilities, I'm a hundred percent confident that reading and metabolizing this book will make you a better preacher. Um, I have very limited preaching responsibilities at the church. I think I preach maybe six times a year maybe, maybe five times a year, but I can tell you that reading this book has already changed how I approach crafting and thinking about a sermon. And I think really fruitful ways. And if you're not someone who's engaged in the task of preaching, reading this book will really help you to understand as a, as a person who's being preached to what you should be listening for in the sermon, why it's important for you to be actually paying attention to sermon, why it right. might make more sense to actually take your head up out of your notes and listen to the preacher, make eye contact once in a while, instead of being fastidious about getting every little jot and tittle of the, the, the in information that's being communicated to you down. It really is a phenomenal, amazing book. We're not that far into it. You can still join us on this. You can pick it up pretty much anywhere. Amazon, Westminster books, you know, christianbook.com, anything. So pick it up. It's a, it's a great book. One of the surprising things for me about this book has been just the way in which we've kind of had this conversation that's like a bicycle wheel with so many spokes. So at the yeah. center is the Reformed preaching, but there's all these things emanating from it. And so for anybody that's thinking, I'm not a pastor and I'm not really into preaching like that, I hear your heart. I understand what you're saying, but consider like one of the things, one of the, just, here's just a random quote that Beaky throws out on page 184 that just, just to leave some people with, because this is the kind of thing you can expect from this book. He says, true religion is not just the ability to talk and think, 
but a mysterious knowledge in the heart. We do not really know God's grace until his grace is within us. Yeah. So you're getting all this kind of, these kind of like amazing observations because when we're going through speaking about these types of preachers, we're getting a sense for what they believe, what was the center of their ministry. And that by itself is so valuable because it's not yeah. just about the discipline of preaching, but why they preached. And so we've talked about even in this episode, everything from what it means to read your Bible versus what it means to be preached to, what it means that we ought to live in obedience, what predestination means and how we might understand that's being manifest in our lives. So it's not like this is just entirely a strict manual about here's how you craft a sermon. There's certainly right. great parts of that, but well above and beyond that, there's so much practical meat here that we can chew on for a Christian living day to day for all of God's people. And that's something that's kind of caught me by surprise in reading this. And I'm so glad it's part of the writing. Yeah, I agree. I I think this book is just phenomenal. And I think, um, you know, there are a couple figures in the, the theological landscape right now that I think we will look back on in future generations as really giants of the faith, uh, similar, maybe not to the extent, but similar to the way we look at, uh, Calvin or uh, Beza now, um, who, you know, honestly, like Calvin was not that well appreciated during his time as as a person living and writing on Earth. He, he just right. wasn't. Uh, it wasn't until the next generation or even the second generation after that got a hold of his works that they realized how really important he was. And I think, you know, R.C. Sproul, now that he's gone, I think we all realize how significant he was. Sinclair Ferguson is probably another one of those figures. And I really genuinely think that in terms of our theology of preaching and our understanding of practical piety, Joel Beakey really is among that list of men that we will look back on in future generations as someone who had an outsized influence. And the beauty of it is that we have access to him, not only through his writing, but through his preaching, through his podcasting, through his work at Puritan Reform Seminary. God willing, someday we'll have access to him through an interview on this podcast. It, it, it really is amazing yeah. to be able to interact with his work as it's coming out, because I really think he'll be one of those figures. I agree. So let me kind of end it this way, because we'll bring us full circle with this idea of, of lineage. We have stood on the shoulders of so many people that God has yeah. used in our lives, both, I'd say, like in a more formal sense by way of their teaching, people we don't know, and then many that we do. And one of the ways that God has used people to influence us and I think push forward his kingdom is just in the support of this tiny little conversation that happens on the corner of the internet on two microphones from people that don't even live in the same place. Yeah. And so there are so many people, there are many people that give of their money to this podcast. And I want to say once again, thank you so much for regularly giving because there are a lot of incidental expenses. And just the fact that you and I do not have to carry that burden is something that is beyond just a blessing. I see that as like a sacrifice of praise. So of course your first opportunity and your first obligation should always be to your local church. If however, there is some way in which you are feeling that God is leading you to want to support the little conversations that Tony and I have, if you've been blessed by them, we would love for you to support that. And any gift, small or large, we will never say no. Yeah. We, we covet prayers and we covet the financial support equally. And you can look us up on Patreon, right? Uh, yep. That's how most people give. Yep. Patreon. Uh, you can look us up at Reform Brotherhood on Patreon. Or if you want to do just a direct PayPal, you can send it to uh, reformbrotherhood at gmail.com on PayPal. And we really, really do appreciate, um, you know, every gift we get, whether it's large or small, because, you know, a- as Jesse said, like, there's not a lot of expenses that we have, but uh, we want to make sure that we're being wise and stewarding our resources well. And so to, to not have to make the decision between whether we produce this podcast or whether we, you know, contribute to our local church in a more direct way is really, really beneficial. And, you know, it's not um, I, I'm, I'm quick to say that on one sense, this show and what we do with the podcast is not a ministry in like a capital M sense of the word ministry. Right. But it is in a lot of ways, it is a vocational ministry. Like this is something that I, I'm really convinced that God has called us to do. And I know he's called us to do it because we're doing it like that. That's part of his revealed will that he's brought us to this place where we're doing this podcast. And we really couldn't do it not only without the financial support of people who listen, 
but without the people who call in and leave us voicemails for question casts, without the encouraging emails we get, without the, right the feedback that we get from people on Facebook with ideas and thoughts about the podcast, without the people who challenge us to, to think about things in different ways or ask hard questions that we haven't thought about before. So we really appreciate that the Reformed Brotherhood is not just this show that Jesse and I do, but really has become this community and this network that really serves to uh, to further and to preach the gospel in its own non-ecclesiastical way. And I think in a way that I hope supports the, the ministry of the church as well. Well, this has definitely been the definitive 158th episode it of has. the TRB. I can agree with that. Okay, good. I figured I could get you on board with that. So yeah. in that vein, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.